Okay, hello everyone. How are we doing today? A jump, bunch of people jumped in last minute. Okay, um, so we have, I think, exactly half the class here. So that's not great. Uh, but let's see. Um, move this down here. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble with my my gauge control today with the volume, and I don't quite know why. So if uh, if my voice comes in very, very irritatingly loud or starts popping, my apologies. Um, I'll try and fix it as we go along today. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah, let, let's start off. We have, we have enough people, we have enough to do today. And so I want to start today by talking about uh, the citation style. And so I want to do just a quick kind of um, 10 minutes on on uh, citation style, maybe less than 10 minutes looking at Purdue OWL as a guide for you guys as you're, you know, kind of making sure your, your format is correct and uh, then go from there. So I'll start by asking people about the website Purdue OWL. Is anybody familiar with that website? Yes. Okay. It, it seems like a lot of people are in the last class. Is anybody not? Is this new? Okay, so, so everyone has used it before. I haven't. You haven't. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so good. So it'll be worth, worth going over because I think, uh, Leanna, it, it'll be a useful resource for you for everybody, um, and hopefully this, these few minutes will be, uh, will be helpful if you're doing more humanities stuff. Um, are there any English majors in here, or theater majors, who might be, you know, or minors, rather, uh, who might be doing this kind of paper again? Okay. All right, so yeah, so this will be, you'll be doing this crap for, uh, on, I call it crap. I mean, it's useful, but it's like the irritating part of, of doing a paper. So we'll kind of uh, knock it out. Um, but yeah, if you're minoring in English, yeah, you'll definitely be dealing with this again. So I'm going to just going to go to the, the Purdue OWL website. I'll present that for you guys. If I can find it, here it is. Uh, and we'll just, we'll do this quickly since uh, it seems like most people are kind of, um, kind of get it. Uh, and if the computer's a little slow, it's, the, there's just computer problems today. So my apologies in advance. Um, so anyway, we see here a, uh, a sample of, um, of an MLA paper. I actually want to zoom out of this and go to the various citation styles that are available to you. And so you could see here at the bottom under suggested resources, <clears throat> three guides, MLA, APA, and Chicago. Purdue also offers guides for medical citation if you're, you're doing one of those, um, and also electronical and engineering citation styles. However, that, that clearly doesn't apply 
to what we're doing today, but if anybody here is in engineering, I've had engineering students before, there is a resource for that if you're, you're writing papers on that topic at Purdue. Um, but we have three style guides. The You're free to use any three, but I will say MLA and Chicago are very different from APA. So APA is uh, the American Psychological Association, and that tends to be used for um, what you might call the soft sciences, like psychology, economics, etc., psychiatry. Um, and the citation style is a little different there. APA emphasizes the year in which something is published. Now, since it is a, uh, a soft science, since it is a science citation style, this is important. Science tends to privilege recent publications over older publications, recent publications over big names in the field. Now, I'm not, I'm not a major in, in one of the, I'm not a major, I'm not a major in anything but anymore, but I wasn't a major in one of the, the soft sciences, so I'm not researched in this area. This is, this is just my understanding. If somebody else is a major, they can correct me or, or support the conclusions I'm, I'm drawing. Um, but that's what APA is doing. It's really recent research is important. MLA and Chicago emphasize the researcher more than the year of research. This is not to say that APA doesn't see who's doing the research as important. Of course it does. It's just, it's privileging that one thing slightly over the name of the researcher. MLA in Chicago, on the other hand, um, while the best research includes recent publications, um, the humanities has the privilege of working at a maybe a slower pace than the soft sciences or, or the hard sciences for that matter. And so what you'll see with MLA in Chicago, there's an emphasis on uh, the, the name of the researcher. And so like the big dog in the field, um, the, the most famous specialist in whatever area you're looking at. So if you're looking at Ibsen, you know, the, the big name in Ibsen, um, that person is going to have a lot more clout than let's say a unknown researcher but who published in 2020 right and so you really should be looking for kind of the big names in the conversation what are other people citing right and that's a big deal now as i said before you're free to use to choose between the three i think chicago or mla advantages you in terms of writing uh writing your papers over apa but i you know I know some people here, I think, are psychology or psychiatry majors. Um, I believe that's true. Uh, but, you know, so if you want to practice APA, be my guest. Um, but anyway, so how you're going to be using these different citation styles in your actual paper. Well, and, and how you can use that with the Purdue OWL resource. Well, to start... Let's go to Chicago. Click on Chicago and wait. Um, the manual style, 17th edition, is the, is the most recent. The, the way these people make money is they publish a new edition every year, and it's, you know, basically the same thing over and over again. Um, but maybe there's a slight change, and yeah, it, it, it's kind of a bit of an, a bit nonsensical, but 
whatever it's uh it's fine so anyway what chicago what you can do then is if you want to choose the chicago citation style you can go to the chicago style and it has here general format um and how to how to cite things so let's go to books let's say you're citing a book you're quoting from a book and you want to cite it correctly in the chicago format well you're obliged to do two things you have to do a footnote or endnote, your choice, and a corresponding bibliographical entry. Okay? What a footnote or endnote is, yeah, I'm sure you guys know, a footnote is a, a note on the bottom, a little piece of writing on the bottom of a page that is written in this format that you could see on screen here that I've highlighted in blue there. Um, and what that um, what that does is it tells you the source and where the source came from, right? The, the page number. Um, the bibliographical entry, also known in the back as the work cited page, that you write in this format, and then the idea being that gives uh, um, that gives kind of a list of all the things this author has has looked at, all the things this author has cited. Okay, for for that. So you could see here examples. This is the note. And so, um, you know, the note, either a footnote, which just goes on the bottom of the page, or an endnote, which goes at the back of the paper, um, de depending on it's on you, you know, whichever one you prefer. Um, if you don't know how to do that, um, it's in Microsoft Word. So it's right there in Microsoft Word. But this is what it looks like here. The idea is you get all the information and the page number. If you're quoting it again, right, you're quoting, let's say, in this example, Jack Kerouac's uh, work again, you could just put Kerouac, comma, and the, the next page number, right? Um, you don't have to keep putting this whole thing. One thing I'll emphasize, you could see here, cite a book automatically in Chicago style. Please don't use the automatic citation thing. I, I can't tell you enough how much it sucks. It, uh, not because I think you need to go through the hard work of writing things out. Um, shortcuts are great. It's just these things never work, and they look like crap, and they're incredibly frustrating. So just just ignore, do not use the automatic citation system. In the last class I did this, I said, don't use the automatic citation system, and a few people did and said, I thought you told us to use the automatic citation system. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll just so I'll repeat it, please, 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 God, don't. It's very annoying to read. Anyway, so that's the system there, and that's Chicago. Um, MLA, on the other hand, does not use a system of footnotes or endnotes for their, uh, for their citation. You can use a footnote to add additional information, let's say, but it's not, you're not citing things via a footnote. So with MLA, um, let me get to it, it's opening here, with MLA, what you do then is you still do a there it is uh, you still do a work cited in the back so you still do a bibliographical entry but what you're going to do in terms of the citation is that you're going to be adding a um, you're going to be adding at the end of the sentence in which you are citing something, 
you're going to put in parentheses the last name of the source and right next to it the page number of where that source is located and you just do that for for the uh for the entirety of your paper so you're not doing footnotes or endnotes it's just a last name and a page number if there is no page numbers just the last name the idea being that we can look at that last name and then go to the works cited page and find the source the idea of your works cited is um besides ethical scholarship where you you credit people for the work they've done you also want to make it easy for your reader to look at your sources and see what the conversation is up to that point you are engaging in a research conversation and so presumably i mean we're kind of performing this and you know I, I doubt any of these papers will be published but um but presumably you are engaging in this conversation and your work will permit others to engage in the conversation and so you want to let others who read your work know what the conversation is they should be able to trace it back um, that mean doesn't mean you have to cite every single thing ever you know they can look at the thing you're citing and see what the thing you're citing cited right they could do that work them, themselves um, but you do want to make it easy for them you want to make them know what the uh, what the conversation is so let me just bring up an MLA sample paper to show you how it's different and then we'll get into HEDA So, one second. Um, okay, so here we go. We start to see some citation here. Right. Um, so here we have our first citation, or not our first, but the first one we're looking at. Danhoff 7. You can see um, in this sentence there is a quote and this author of this paper has attributed it properly to Dan Hoff. And if we go to the works cited page, I'm sure we could see Dan Hoff and the bibliographic entry. Um, you could see down here, they then this this author, not they, but maybe they, the writers or writer of this paper, um, then quotes Hurt, Hurt 127. Now, in this next sentence, it's clear from the context that this writer is still referencing Hurt, right? We, we don't need to, therefore, since it's obvious, we don't need to say Hurt again. You could just put the page number. You could just put the page number, right? So if you quote someone in the next sentence, you quote them again, and it's clear that it's still that same person, you don't have to write the name again. Um, if you, in the sentence, say, as Hurt says, quote, dot, 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 end quote, you then don't have to write hurt because it's clear from the sentence who's saying it. Hurt is saying it. I would err on the side. If you have that kind of question, I would err on the side of just putting the one extra word there. I mean, it's not wrong and, you know, it's safe. Right? But the, just to let you know, when you see MLA papers and there is no attribution, um, that's because the author is presuming the attribution is clear from the larger context. Okay, so any questions about that?
Um, I will stop presenting then and we'll get back into HEDA. Good, hopefully that'll be, be useful. Um, and let's get into it then. So where's my, here it is. Okay. So last we left off, we did kind of the first two acts of HEDA within our, our first few classes there. Um, let me see where we left off. We we seem to leave off with um, with the end of Act Two, and that's where we want to pick up. Uh, oh, just before we go on, um, sorry, I keep stopping and not getting to Hedda. Uh, please, everyone, um, do the set survey for the class. It is very helpful. This is this is the document that future employers look at. Uh, when I, you know, change jobs, which which will be inevitable. Um, so do do those surveys. A good participation in those surveys does help. All right, moving on. Um, so anyway, let's look back at the last page of Act Two and connect it to the end of this play. So um, I'm going to read through kind of the last eight bits of dialogue between Hedda and Mrs. Elstead, and then we could talk about it. Let's do a reading of it. So, start here. This is, uh, this is Mrs. Elstead speaking. There's something behind what you're doing, Hedda. Hedda. Yes, there is. For once in my life, I want to have power over a human being. Mrs. Elstead. But don't you have that, Hedda? I don't have it. I've never had it. Elfsted. Not with your husband? Hedda. Yes. What a bargain that was. Oh, if you only could understand how poor I am. And you're allowed to be so rich. I think I'll burn your hair off after all. Let go. Let me go. I'm afraid of you, Hedda. And then Bird of the Maid comes in and says, Supper's waiting in the dining room, ma'am. Hedda. All right, we're coming. Mrs. Elfsted. No, no, no. I'd rather go home alone. Right away. Now. Hedda. Nonsense. First you're going to have tea, you little fool. And then ten o'clock, Ellert Loveborg comes with vine leaves in his hair. And that is the midpoint in the play. So what the hell is going on with that? And the two things I really, really highlighted here is Hedda saying, for once in my life I want to have power over a human being. Then the last thing of Loveborg coming in with vines in his hair. Oh, Rachel. Um, sorry. Uh, yes, the papers are due Monday by midnight. Yeah, good. But but anyway, um, back to back to Hedda. Sorry, can you hear me? Yes. Hmm? Okay, my network connection is being a little funky right now. Okay. Um, but. I found when she says that he has vines in his hair, like, mm. what is that supposed to symbolize? Because mm -hmm. okay. obviously it's important. Otherwise, she wouldn't have said anything. Mm. And I'm assuming it relates to, like, the having power over people. Because okay. he's the one that she ultimately does kind of have power over. Like, she literally has his life in her hands. And she basically tells him to die. Um so I'm wondering if that's like 
if the vines are maybe like Shakespeare, I'm I'm reaching here, but like Shakespearean or like something along those lines of just like dramatic and I don't know. So I would say that the the vines in the hair, um, think Prince of Hamburg, right? Think of the the laurel wreath, right? So the the Prince of Hamburg is. The world, I would say that world is the world that is more like Hedda's upbringing than the world we're reading here. And so the Prince of Hamburg, why does he have the the vines in his hair, the laurel wreath? Oh, I know that like the laurel wreath was for victory Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Which is why, like, the fact that she says vines and she doesn't specify, like, a specific plant. Mm Mm-hmm. That's where I was kind of like, okay, where is she going with this? Okay. Yeah. My So my reading of it is, you know, when I read this, um, you know, putting this class together, it's kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, that's that's the Prince of Hamburg, right? <laughs> that's um, the Laurel Reef, which is, you know, uh, um, the crown of victory, but also the crown of, like, the great poet, right? And so we have here... Like, let's crown Loveborg, who is the great, maybe not poet, but, what, you know, the Napoleon of intellect. That's sort of the fantasy she's imagining. Right? It, it's this, she's romanticizing him. Right? And so we... Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry, I don't mean to mm-hmm. interrupt. Um, it, def- it felt like the fact that she says vines specifically instead of like oh a laurel wreath or like a wreath of roses or something like that it mm-hmm. kind of makes it seem more wild in okay. a sense okay. so like there's almost a a feeling of like i don't want to say like uncivilization but mm-hmm. kind of just that like wild aspect of you know romanticism and like nature and all that good stuff mm-hmm yeah i i think that's a that's a smart read to it that there is this it's it's the it's a wilder version of the laurel reef right it's not you know it's almost like he's being cut out of nature um as opposed to um you know cutting nature to his his whim possibly uh but i you know maybe that's true maybe it's not but i i think that's a smart read to see it Hedda's view of that kind of romanticism as more wild even than what we've seen when we encountered romantic literature in this class um so good yeah I I think that's that's smart but we can see at least the the idea of crowning Loveborg right why that's significant um and also her idea of power her idea of needing power. And I think these two things are are connected in this play. This person who needs power, we might even call it, you know, like freedom. Um, and her her conception of who Loveborg is and, and kind of how the world works. Right? These two things are are bound up together. Uh, and and you know, we start to see this, I think, at the end of that act there um and so you know we we kind of move forward here um and what ends up 
happening in Act 3. Um, they have like a dinner party or something mm-hmm. uh, that kind of gets a little crazy. Um, and when everyone is kind of retiring for the night and going back home, um, Loveborg loses his manuscript and like there's a whole thing there and that kind of sets off the tone for the second part of the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they go off to a drinking party, right? Which it's, um, initially it seems like they're going to drink coffee, but it, it's clear that they're not, uh, that, or, or not just anyway. And, um, Loveborg gets pretty drunk and he loses the manuscript. And, uh, who finds the manuscript? Tesman. Tesman. And he gives it to Hedda, Right. So now, you know, um, that that's the idea. He doesn't want to give it back to Loveborg because Loveborg is, is pretty hammered. And, uh, he, you know, he's, um, he's, he's not really prepared for that. Um, and so what ends up happening to, to Loveborg? Brock comes in and Brock sort of reports on what happens to Loveborg. police are called or something there's mm-hmm. like that has something to do with it and like Loveborg doesn't really want to get involved in it so he kind of like basically says see ya I'm out mm-hmm. um yeah I think that's big the big thing yeah yeah basically um, Loveborg goes around accusing people of stealing his and um Mrs. Elvstead's baby, which is, is how he describes it, which also causes some confusion. Um, and eventually, kind of, the, the cops come in, and Tessman and Brock are, are sort of, this is, you know, this is scandalous. We can't, we can't deal with this. There's also the, uh, the singer, the mademoiselle, who Loveborg is friendly with, quote-unquote, um, and he goes to visit her. So there's, there is a sort of social ruining of Loveborg. Um, and we could see this is towards the beginning of the third act. Yeah, it's a, it's about, say about 12 pages into the third act, um, where we have uh, Brock telling, um, telling Hedda about what happened. Um, and he tells, he, he first, he lets her know that he, he, Loveborg, was in Mademoiselle Diana's parlor. Um, she was holding a soiree for a select circle of lady friends and admirers. Um, Hedda says, is she a red-haired woman? Brock, precisely, had a sort of a singer. Brock, oh yeah, she's that too. And a mighty huntress of men, Miss Hedda. Um, you undoubtedly heard about her. Loveborg was one of her ruling favors. Um... And then it keeps going. Apparently her, Mademoiselle Diana and Loveborg gets in, get into a fight. Um, when the police are called and Hedda then says, 
um, to Brock, where did you hear all this about the story? And Brock says, from the police themselves, Hedda. So that's how it went. Then he had no vine leaves in his hair. Brock, vine leaves, Miss Hedda? Um, and, you know, that that's where the vine leaves are brought up again. And so there's a bit of a shattering of illusion here. And what's that shattering of illusion? Hedda kind of has this picture of Loveborg as like this romantic academic kind of a thing. Like he's the fact that he's like focusing on all of history instead of one specific thing is kind of like I want to compare it to like an adventurer almost, mm -hmm. but like not as intense, I guess. Um, so she kind of has this idea of like this romantic poet figure, you know, like like you said, like the Prince of Hamburg, mm -hmm. and the fact that he was basically jumping from house to house, like accusing all these people of stealing his manuscript and you know, being just intoxicated all over the place mm -hmm. is kind of the exact opposite of what this romantic poet is supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, you know, this could be the motto of this play. There are no vine leaves in his hair, slash, you're not free. Right? And that, that keeps happening. And so what is, so Hedda, in her effort to, to take control, to have power over one person, um, and to have the power for herself, what does she do? What is one enormous action Hedda does? I think there are two okay, important there are two. ones. Mm -hmm. um, the first is that she burns the manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, so basically like erasing his kind of persona i guess from mm -hmm. her world in a way mm -hmm. um and then the other one is that he shows up lovebird like shows up at her house and is rambling on about like losing the manuscript and saying how he's gonna kill himself and so she gives him one of her pistols and is like make sure it's a beautiful death <laughs> so she kind of like destroys the one way or one of the ways he made his mark on the world mm -hmm. and then also like himself as a person mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's also um it's also uh the the child with elvstead right with mrs elvstead so it's this you know the, that's how he describes it and and you know had to seize it but exactly it's she gives him the gun go ahead i have a question mm -hmm. was was uh hedda and Loveberg involved previously romantically. Yeah. It sounds like they keep alluding to that. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know. I wasn't sure. Yeah. Yeah. Th that's the impression that's given, right? Is that they were together at one point and, and the pistols involved in that, right? Because the pistol he, she gives him is a pistol. She once pointed at him in one of kind of their romantic trysts, one of the romantic fights. Um, you know, she pointed a gun at him. And then she was too much of a coward to shoot it. 
Okay, so that makes sense why she wants to burn the manuscript, too, is because he says it's the love child of, like, him and the lady that she went to school with. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, he was saying that, like, some mysterious woman was the one who inspired him to write the book, and I'm sure she assumed that that was her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the fact that he kind of... So then you have another destruction of illusion there. Mm-hmm. That, you know, she wasn't the reason why this amazing book is being written. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this this other person. Um, and he even had a reflex on this at one point. I think in, I think in Act 2, uh, where she's like, how could a man like that be in that woman's power? Right? How could how could he be in her hands? She's so pathetic. She's like the she's the girl I didn't bother to learn her name and pulled her hair when she was in their equivalent of high school, right? She's this loser who ends up with this stud. Um, what the hell is going on? That's the uh, that's kind of the the modern way I think of translating that interaction, right? And you know, Hedda wants to kind of restore. Um, wants to control Elves, um, Loveborg, rather, uh, and then sort of restore him to the, the value she sees him in. And so, yeah, so she she gives him the gun, and the gun is not only a means of achieving a beautiful death, which is, you know, her fantasy, but it's also something distinct about their relationship that they they shared. I mean, obviously, they shared because it's their relationship, but it's something distinct about their relationship. Right. And so the gun has that, those kind of um, uh, two functions for her. But let's get to Act 4. Um, yeah. Uh, or rather, I'll say the end of Act 3, the last line of Act 3, right, is um, uh, now I'm burning your child, Thea. Thea is, is, um, is the, is what's her name? Um, uh, Elberg, uh, or sorry, I literally just forgot her name. Elvsted. Elvsted, thank you. <laughs> Norwegian names, they're, they're you know, there there's kind of a rhythm. Uh, but anyway, close yeah, enough. yeah, close enough. Uh, now I'm burning your child, Thea. You with your curly hair this is the hair she pulled in the first act, or talked about pulling when she was a kid in the first act. Your child in Ellert Loveborgs. Now I'm burning, I'm burning the child, right? So that's that's how this act ends. So let's talk about the suicide, um, the quote-unquote suicide. So what ends up happening to Loveborg? Um, he does end up dying, but the way it's described is that it's an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, like it seems like the pistol kind of went off and he didn't necessarily mean to pull it mm-hmm. and so because of that it's like not like through the heart or whatever so it's it's not what Hedda would consider like this beautiful death mm-hmm. exactly right so she's she well she initially says put it to your temple and then we learn in um when Brock comes up Brock is the Brock's job, in part, is to uh, deliver news. He, he's an exposition machine. Um, but uh, there's a lot of plot devices in this play, for as good as it is. We get the maid scene at the beginning and exposition Brock. But anyway, uh, so Brock comes in and um, 
in Act Four, and he gives the news about what has happened to to Loveborg. And this is the middle of the act. This is about this is about eight pages into the act, um, and Brock is is talking to Elstead and Hedda, and um, Hedda asks. In the chest, you say, or she states, in the chest, you say, as in he shot himself in the chest. Yes, I told you. Hedda, not in the temple? Brock, in the chest, Mrs. Tessman. Hedda, well, well, the chest is just as good. Brock, why, Miss Tessman? Oh, nothing, never mind. Um, and so we get a sense there that, it, it, you know, she's still trying to recover the beauty of the death, right? Or or at least situate the death in a way that that is acceptable to her. However, what do we learn about um, once Elstead goes away and Brock has Hedda alone for reasons, you know, for some nefarious reasons, we learn that, what about Loveborg's suicide? Was it really a suicide? Yeah, exactly. And where was he when he accident the gun accidentally went off? I think he was in like some lady's bedroom. I'm not <laughs> sure if it was the singer from before, but like Yeah. Yeah, that that's the implication that it's Mademoiselle Diane's or Diana's bedroom. That uh, so he's in an ugly place, ugly by their their kind of social standards, right? Uh, he's in this ugly place, and it isn't a beautiful suicide; it's an accident. And not only is he, you know, not not shooting himself in a beautiful way, we also learn. I think Brock says he shot himself in like the stomach, more or less. So it's um, a pretty ugly bullet wound, also. Right, it's not it's not in the heart or in the temple or something like that. Th this death is ugly, and I, I've read some critics who who interpret Brock saying more or less as being like he he shot himself south of the border, and and that's how he died. Um, I you know I don't know if that's substantiated, but it speaks to the the real world ugliness of Loveborg's death. Right, this is not the beautiful death that Hedda envisioned. It's not a suicide. Um, it's, it's not um, a, a beautiful testament to this, this kind of great man. Uh, he, he killed himself in a, he didn't kill himself, but he died in a kind of disreputable place. And what was he doing in that disreputable place anyway? What does Brock tell us? He was looking for the manuscript again. Yeah, he was looking so for... the fact that he's, like, in another woman's bedroom looking for the love child between him and Mrs. Elfstead. <laughs> it's, like, this whole shattering of whatever, you know, she thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great point. It's, you know, he's he's looking for... And he keeps... Nobody knows what he's talking about because he keeps talking 
referring to it as the love child right as the child so it's you know it's it's not even the great work of this genius man it's like you can't even hide the fact that he was inspired by Elfsted um, or Hedda can't anyway and yeah he's in this uh and yeah, it's like two women who are incredibly important to him at the end of his life one of whom is disreputable one of whom is pathetic at least by Hedda's standards neither of them are Hedda and you know, he's drunk, he's kind of a mess, and he dies as ugly as possible. Uh, that's that's what you get, right? That's what Hedda gets. And then, you know, the final real nail in the coffin is what? What does Brock do? recognizes the pistol so he knew it was Hedda's pistol mm-hmm. and he kind of you know puts two and two together and it's like you you were the one that caused this right exactly yep <laughs> yeah and and he blackmails her right and he's you know I he, he kind of suggests anyway that he's gonna blackmail her um and he says he'll, you know, he'll be good to her or whatever. He won't, he won't abuse his position. But uh, the point, I think, is that she is now no longer kind of free, right? Uh, she says this is uh, like three or four pages before the end of the play, before the end of Act 4. And she's speaking... Um, to Brock, Brock says, well, luckily there's no danger, no danger of her being um, scandalized by her involvement. Well, luckily there's no danger as long as I keep quiet. And Hedda says, so I'm in your power, Judge. You have hold over me now. Um, Brock, my dearest Hedda, believe me, I won't abuse my position. Hedda, all the same, I'm in your power, tied to your will and desire. Not free. Not free then. No, I can't bear the thought of it. Never. Okay, so the, the, this final kind of destruction of her kind of illusions or her desires then is that not only um, can she not have power over other people, not only is this romantic idea that she grew up in that was cultivated by her upbringing, you know, remember she has this military father. I, I sort of imagine that like, her dad is like the Prince of Hamburg, right? Or is like the, you know, she's like Natalie in the Prince of Hamburg. Her her father is, or in that case, her uncle, is, you know, the elector of Brandenburg, is, you know, this, this romantic figure who people lay down their lives for and lay down their lives beautifully, right? Um, and then imagine taking Natalie out of that world and dumping her into, you know, d- dumping her on Tessman. And having Tessman in this kind of provincial Norwegian way, provincial Norwegian town, um, marry Natalie from the Prince of Hamburg, and then just have to deal with that, right? Um, that's end up that's that's the kind of the level of illusion that's being shattered for Hedda, and then it ends with Hedda just wants to be free, and her way of finding freedom is to kind of restore that, that those romantic notions and to have power via them, right? She wants to have power, as she says, over another person. She wants to have power over, you know, um, 
uh, over Loveborg because she has power over Tessman. She gets she appears to be able to get whatever she wants from him, as you know, as long as his credit is good, as long as he can get his appointment, right? But it's it's as she says, it's like, oh, who cares, <laughs> right? Like, like yeah, I have power over him. What what is that? Who is this person? He's a specialist. Right. He's not he's not a great man. He's not an, he's not a ruler. He is not the Napoleon of the intellect or, or Napoleon generally. He's just some specialist, some guy. Um, and now at the end, she's lost her grand man. She's lost this this kind of Napoleon figure, or at least that's the way she conceives of him, right? I mean, we could question whether Loveborg is actually that guy, though his talent seems to be real. Multiple characters comment on how great his publication was and how great his manuscript is that he that gets destroyed, um, you know. And so, not only uh, not only does does that go, but also the freedom she was hoping to have. It ends with her being in Brock's control. So, you know, not only, not only, she ends below where she started. She ends with less control than ever. Yeah, she, she was stuck with kind of this guy she thinks of as kind of a loser, that is Tessman, um, but at least she controls the situation. She says, I want another piano, and he starts getting to work getting her another piano. She says, I like this house, and he buys the house for her, even though it's out of his price range. Um, and by the end now, she's gonna be in Brock's service, whatever that means. And we could think of that as nefarious as you'd like I think the point is it's not freedom and that ends up being where where this play ends and so Hedda does you know the the thing that she can do um she commits suicide beautifully right she shoots herself in the temple with the remaining gun and that that is her last option and I think how this touches on the naturalism that we talked about on Monday, on our, our first day on Hedda, is that we have um, a person who is affected deeply by the environment in which they were they were brought up. She was, you know, shaped by the world from which she came, um, and she's sort of bound to the life she has because of the reality from which she came, because of this kind of romantic illusion that has been uh, foisted on her. Um, and it's also realism. This play also deals with realism that we talked about on Monday in the sense that, you know, those romantic illusions are called illusions for a reason. They're, they're not real. This is not how the actual world is. Um, the Prince of Homburg, I think, is, is a wonderful play, and I really like the production we saw, but it's not something I expect as a slice of life you know uh ibsen is also not a slice of life i mean people don't do this every day obviously uh however it is closer to, to realism than anything else we've read in this class you know it's closer to um it's closer to the mundane even though the play is not mundane than anything else we realize in this world how the the forces of environment condition people and we also realize that those conditioning those conditions can sometimes 
um, negatively interact with the real world, right? The, the realism of the world. And as we go forward into our last class, one more class, where we get to watch uh, Vanya on 42nd Street from Chekhov's play, Uncle Vanya, play of the late 1890s, um, Chekhov is even more invested in realism. And a lot of what Uncle Vanya is about is about highlighting the mundane, about conversations between characters in which there are stakes, but there isn't a big action. Now, at the end of every act three of Chekhov's major work, works rather, there is a big action. There, there, the big dramatic thing happens at the end of act three, and it happens here too. Um, however, a lot of what we're going to see with Chekhov is um, is the, you know, what Chekhov saw as, you know, the realism of, what Chekhov saw as realism, which is there isn't dramatic melodrama every day. There isn't giant speeches out to audiences. That's not how the real world works. The real world is people sitting down, having vodka, it's Russia, and talking and sharing their feelings. And that's what we're going to see. And I think a, mar a marvelous film of, uh, of Uncle Vanya for our last class. Um, any comments before we go? We have less than a minute. Okay, great. Well, since it's Friday, I think we'll end slightly early. And by slightly early, I mean probably less than 20 seconds at this point. Um, but I hope you enjoyed Hedda Gabler. And I will see you guys on Monday for our last class. And I'll stay on the line in case um, people need to, uh, to talk to me. Okay? Thank you.